Grab your Bibles, Judges 19 this morning. I think this is going to be a first for me. Uh, I don't really know where we're stopping today. Uh, we're going to s- stop at some point. Uh, but we have three chapters left. It's all pretty much one story. And, and I don't feel like I could do all of 19 and 20 like I thought I could. And now I don't think I can. And so I think we're going to stop somewhere in the middle of 20. We'll pick up 20 wherever I leave off this week. And we'll finish 20 and 21 next week. And that will be the end of our study through the book of Judges. What we've seen starting a couple chapters ago with Micah is here's Israel. They're doing everything that's right in their own eyes, which has led Micah to idol worship. It's led Micah to doing the ephod and trying to worship God his own way and all that mess. It's led to Dan, the tribe of Dan, which I said last week look a lot more like Egypt, I think, than it does the people of God, than it does this covenant God they have a relationship with. Okay, so, so as we dive into to chapter 19, we're going to see the same thing. Uh, people are doing what's right in their own eyes, and we're going to see where that takes them here in this chapter and the chapter to follow. Before we do all this, though, I do want to say this. This is a little bit, I mean, it's in the text. It might be a little bit nerdy, but we can, we can handle nerdy for a second. If you look in chapter 20, verse 28, it's, it, there's a parenthetical starting in verse 27, I guess. It says, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days. Okay, that might not seem like a huge thing, it's in parentheses, but what that's telling us is telling us the timeline. Okay, so the book of Judges, most people are going to ballpark it around 400 years. So Judges 1 to Judges 21, it's going to take 400 years for the people of Israel to go through this, this story. Okay, what what he's telling us, the author of of Judges is telling us in chapter 20, is that this story actually takes place earlier than where we're at. Okay, so so what is he saying? This is what I think he's saying. One, throughout the book of Judges, we read what? We've read, and Israel did evil in the sight of God. Okay, and we've kind of tried to label some of that evil. We've tried to say child sacrifice would have been part of that, uh, idol worship. And so we saw idol worship last couple chapters with Micah. Uh, Now we're going to see, I think, another picture of what this looked like to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so I don't think the author wants us to have to guess. Uh, I, I think we see it. Okay, he's going to tell us what some of this evil looked like. Secondly, the author of Judges isn't necessarily super concerned. I mean, it seems that he works chronologically, but that doesn't seem to be his main target. The target of the, of the way he structures the story is that he would end with this story. So, so here's, here's the resolution. Here's how we're going to end. We're going to end with this story. Not necessarily chronologically, but here's I'm going to say maybe the worst example, if we could say it that way, uh, the, the example that shows Israel at their worst. Like, that's how we're ending this book. Okay? So, uh, that's what that parentheses means, that this story probably took place earlier in the midst of those 400 years and not later, but it's, it's structured this way on purpose by the author, and we get a little bit of a glimpse into the evil that Israel has done in the sight of the Lord and, and, and whatnot. So, here we go. Uh, chapter 19, Judges. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, and again, we should finish that in our thinking, the people did what was right in their own eyes, okay? That there was a certain Levite saying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself before Bethlehem and Judah. Okay, first thing here from, from verse 1, that for some of us is like, hey, this sounds familiar already. Here's a Levite and Ephraim and something to do with Bethlehem. Like, man, that sounds familiar. Is this the same guy? And everyone I've read says, no, it's not the same guy. Okay, we think it's probably a different timeline, different part of the story, different everything. Just happens to be a Levite from the same area. Okay, second thing that jumps out to us probably is this word that we don't use. At least I don't know of anyone who has one of these, uh, but the word concubine. 
right? Like, what do we do with concubine? What does that mean? Should a Levite have a concubine? Like, that's a whole question that I can't seem to really find great answers for. Like, is, is this an issue? What's the problem with it? Okay, uh, I don't know. That's where I'm going to start. But what we see from the text is we're going to see himself call, he's going to call himself husband. He's going to say he has a father-in-law. The father-in-law is going to refer to him as son-in-law. So at some level, uh, it seems to have some sort of relationship, some sort of contract. I don't know if that's the right word, but covenant, probably a better word. Uh, but there's some, there's some sort of this. So not wife, uh, almost wife, close to being a wife. I, okay, that's the picture that we see. Okay, verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. Okay, so, so whatever she did in verse 2, playing the harlot, like, that's not good. Okay, so should he have a concubine? Should he not have a concubine? I can't really find many answers to that, but what we can find an answer to is in verse 2, like, this is not what you should have done, you wife slash concubine. Okay, what does she do? She runs to her father's house, which is in Bethlehem. Uh, she stays there for four months. Verse 3, then her husband. Again, there's that word, like, what's this relationship with husband, concubine? We don't, don't totally understand that, but here we go. Her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. Okay, so now we're going to get a glimpse of this father-in-law. Okay, and I feel like in the book of Judges, uh, maybe back to Deborah, definitely Manoah and his wife, like in, as, as horrible as Judges has been, there's been these little bit of bright spots. And like, here's somebody who seems to get it in the midst of everyone not getting it. Okay, here's the father-in-law, and we're going to start reading about him in verse 4. And I think that he seems to be a little bit of a bright spot. Okay, we'll talk about him. But, but from what I can tell, it seems like this is, this is good. Okay, verse 4, his father-in-law... The girl's father detained him. That sounds bad, but it just means he brought him into his house, like not prison. Okay? And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Okay, I can't remember where I heard this or read this, but somewhere in my brain, I was thinking about Jewish um, culture and this idea of hospitality, because we see it here in Judges. We see it all the way back in Genesis. We see this idea of hospitality, and we see it in the life of Jesus. Okay, so, so here's this idea of hospitality that we see throughout the whole Old Testament and New Testament. And so my thought was like, hey, that's cool. You, you invite travelers and sojourners into your home. You feed them. You let them sleep in your house. Like, that's really cool. But, but at some point, like, couldn't you take advantage of that? Like, two, three months in, like, hey, it's time for you to leave? Like, like at what point? Okay, so somewhere in my studies, uh, again, I don't remember where. I think it's true. I don't know. But the idea was three days. If, if you're this person and someone is showing you hospitality, day three you leave. Thank you. Thank you for feeding me. Thank you for letting me sleep here. But three days. Okay, so what do we see in verse four? They, they ate. He was fed. They drank. He, there's, no, he's not thirsty. Like They're taking care of his needs. And they lodged there. Okay, that's hospitality. That's the expectation from my understanding of where hospitality would end. Verse five. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go, this would be the Levite, and the girl's father said to his son-in-law, sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down, and they ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him, so he spent the night there again. Okay, so expectation, I understand, he's got a daughter in the story, and so maybe there's a little bit of that at work, but the expectation is three days, uh, now there's a fourth day, and he says, no, come stay with me. And so there's this picture of hospitality that we see that we're not going to see here in, in, in the very near future in the story. 
Okay, but again, here's this man being hospitable, seems to be this good guy. He's glad to meet his, his, his son-in-law. Uh, verse 8. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here, that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey, so that you may go home. And again, what do we see? I think we're supposed to walk away with, here's a father-in-law who is very hospitable, who's very loving. Like, this is a, a good man doing good part in the story. Verse 10. But the man, the Levite, was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite of Jebus, which is the Jebusites, uh, that is Jerusalem. And there was with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn aside in the city of the Jebusites and spend, uh, spend the night in it. However, the master said, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. Okay, it's getting late. You left too late. Now it's dark. The sun is setting. We're going to see that in just a second. The, the servant says, hey, here's the Jebusites. Let's go there. Problem with the Jebusites, they're not children of Israel. And so the Levite says, we, no way. No way are we staying in the city of foreigners. Verse 13. He said to his servant, Come and let us approach one of these places. We will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way. And the sun sat on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay, so, so here we are, and it's, it's, it's late, it's dark. You, you wouldn't travel at dark. Like, that's not something you would do. Like, in our world, it's like, oh, we're going to drive through the night. Like, that's a common thing that people say. You wouldn't do that in this context. The sun has set. You're going to go find a place to sleep. You're probably going to go inside unless you're on the road and there's no city. But if there's a city, the expectation is that somebody's going to invite you in. Okay, so what does he say? He says, we're not going to go hang out with the Jebusites. They're not children of God. They're not Israelites. They're not part of us. So we're going to go find someone who is like us is, is kind of the idea. And so what do we see in verse 15, though? We find this glimpse of what's about to come, or at least a little bit of what's to come in verse 15, is that here's Gibeah, a city in Benjamin, and they're not really doing what they should be doing. Right, because you wouldn't have a man, his wife slash concubine, a servant, and some donkeys sitting out in the open square when it's dark and the sun is already set. Like, that's not the expectation. The expectation is that somebody would have brought him in. We've already seen the expectation, and we know that he's her father. We get that. But we saw a really good example of hospitality, and now it's like, hey, something's missing here in Benjamin, even though you're God's people. Okay? Verse 16. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now, a man was from the hill country of Ephraim, same place as Levite is from, same place as Evites, tr Levite's trying to get back to, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. Okay, so, so here's, this, uh, here's a man from Ephraim, and here's the men from Benjamin, and the men from Benjamin aren't doing their job, but maybe this guy from Ephraim will. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler, verse 17, in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? He said, the Levites said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah. But now I'm going to my house, and no man will take me into his house, okay? There's no hospitality here, even though you pick this place because they're the people of God and they should do that. Verse 19, yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. 
There is no lack of anything. So verse 19, he's saying, look, you don't even have to feed us. Right? I have enough food for my donkeys. I have enough food for me. I have enough food for my wife, my concubine. I have enough food for like, all he's saying is no one invited us in. We're not going to take any of your food. We're not going to take any of your wine, any of your drinks. Like, right? And yet no one still invited us in. Okay, verse 20. The old man said, peace to you. Only let me take care of all of your needs. Seemingly what he is saying is like, someone showed us on your hospitality. They didn't. So I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to take your food. I'm not going to take your drink. Like I'm going to do true hospitality. I'm going to take care of you. Uh, however, do not spend the night in the open square. He, he's urging them not to stay here out in the square. So he takes them into their house. He gave the donkeys fodder, which, which the Levite didn't ask for. He washed their feet. They ate and they drank. Okay, so, so far, Judges 19 seems to be a little bit like just a story on hospitality, which seems weird to end Judges this way. It's going to get a lot worse, and some of you know that. But what we see is actually uh, Genesis 19 starting to play out already. Right? There's a traveler in a, in, in a country uh, sleeping in the open square. Someone sees him at night. They invite him in. Like, we see Genesis 19, which we'll talk more about here in a second. But verse 22 is, is where we really see Genesis 19 play out. While they were celebrating, eating, drinking, enjoying uh, the fellowship, talking about Ephraim, all those things that are probably taking place. Behold, the men of the city, these Benjamites, certain worthless fellows. Okay, that phrase, worthless fellows, we saw back in the story of Gideon. And I should have looked it up because we saw it back in another story as well, Jephthah, I think. Uh, but worthless fellows in the Hebrew and those two stories is not the same phrase as worthless fellows here. Back there, it meant like just I had worthless fellows. Like it was just... Guys that didn't bring anything to the table. Here it actually has this idea of sons of wickedness. And the word worthlessness, wickedness, uh, they're similar. You can kind of interchange them at certain points because Hebrew is not super specific with their words. It's more broad, bigger meanings. So worthlessness fits there. Wickedness fits there. Ruin would fit there. And so the phrase is, here's these men who are sons of ruin, sons of wickedness. And yet they, that's how they're described here in the text. And yet they also are from Benjamin. Seems to be the people of God are now being described as enemies of God were once described. These worthless fellows surrounded the house, pounding the door. The Hebrew there is not just knocking, it's like trying to break the door down. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Okay, Genesis 19, Lot and Sodom. Like that's where we're at. Verse 23, then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. That's like the worst verse, right? Like I thought the same thing back with Lot in, in Genesis 19. Same phrase, same story being repeated here. And it's like, I don't get the context. I don't get the culture. I don't get how in the world you'd ever say, here's my daughter in this context. But that's what he says. That's what Lot says. Okay? But then he says, what? but do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the man would not listen to him. So the man, we do not know which one, if this is the Levite or the owner of the house that they're staying in. But the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. Okay, here's a horrible story. 
but this is, I don't think it's going to be too hard for us to understand why this is here. Verse 1, there's no king in Israel, meaning what? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone doing right in their own eyes, people of God, Israel, here in Benjamin, everyone doing what's right in your own eyes has led you, not instantly, not like, hey, I'm following God and today I'm not following God and now I, no, but like over time, continual doing what's right in your own eyes has led you to what? To look like Sodom. Like the story that took place in Sodom is now taking place in Israel. And not only that, Lot had a little bit of a cheat code because those were angels that came into him and they struck them in with blindness. And so it's like, okay, there was no blindness and there's no angels here. But the story here is like, it actually went worse. Like, Sodom, you didn't take the daughters. Sodom didn't, didn't do what this story did. Like, it was even worse here in Israel than it was in Sodom. Why? Because in verse 1, people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And so what do we see in chapters uh, 17, 18? We see Micah doing what's right in his own eyes. And I think we get to the point where, where Micah's doing false worship. So doing what's right in your own eyes leads to false worship. Doing what's right in your own eyes, Dan, makes you look like Egypt. You become the oppressor. You go invade people you shouldn't be invading that God never told you to invade, I don't think. And so all of a sudden, it's like you look like Egypt. You look like the Philistines. You look like the oppressors. You look like false worship. Here in chapter 19, you look like Sodom. And it's like, what's going to keep the people of God looking different from, from the world around them? It's not just that they have the label people of God on them. It's the fact that they know and they obey and they strive to do the law of God, this covenant that he's given to his people. Like nowhere in, in Judges 19, I guess hospitality, we see some of it, but like, like this overall picture of what's happening here in the last couple of chapters of Judges is like, where's the law? Like, where's the word of God? Where's like, hey, we stood on Mount Sinai and we said, yes, we commit ourselves to God. And we, the words that he said, we will do. Like, we're not that far removed, it doesn't seem like. I know Judges is a couple hundred years. But chapter 20, verse 28, the verse we started with, it almost seems like we're just three generations away from Aaron. Like, we're not that far removed. And yet here, the people of God look so much like Sodom and so very little like God. Okay, so, so that's the easy part. A little bit of the harder part is, is then what do we do with the story? Like, like, how does that affect us? And, and it's like, hey, be careful, follow the word of God, be people of the book. Like, we've said that over and over again. But, but maybe, maybe there's a little bit more to that. Let's keep reading. When her master arose in the morning, this is, this is really, like, what just happens really bad. What's about to happen, like, hopefully it didn't play out verbatim this way. But her master arose in the morning, and he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Then behold, his concubine was laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Verse 28, he said to her, get up and let us go. Like, hopefully, hopefully there was, like, I don't know. Like, what a horrible picture of everything that just took place last night. And, and you're just like, all right, time to leave. Like, I can't. Anyway, but there was no answer. Then he placed her on her donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. Uh, those of you who don't know the story, she has, she's, she's dead. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, okay, here's the 12 tribes, and they get, they get in the mail a package of, of a dismembered body of a concubine who, who just had the story of Sodom taken out on her. Here's what they've said. Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. What has the tribes of Israel said? They said, this is the worst day. Like, there's nothing that ever, like, nothing even compares. Now, us as the reader, like, the, the way the Hebrew structured, it is like Genesis 19 on repeat. Like, 
Like there's no doubt in my mind that we read Genesis 19, that here's Genesis, uh, Judges 19 is Genesis 19. Like it's, we're supposed to go there. The, the tribes, like you just got this body of a concubine sent, like I don't even know how that was sent and like note or delivery boy had to tell you the story, like however that went. Like I don't know if their first thought was, wow, we've turned into Sodom. I think that's the picture. I think that's what they were supposed to walk away with. But here's this unbelief of like, how far have we come? And yet it's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's unfathomable to think you came this far. But at the same time, it seems to be pretty simple because you did what was right in your own eyes. You, you took away the word of God. You took away his laws. You took away everything about him. And you're supposed to be doing, you know, like the Ten Commandments. Like you're supposed to be honoring him and not making graven images and Sabbathing and, and thinking God's enough. And I don't, okay, like all these things you're supposed to be doing, you're doing none of it. And it's like, this is where it leads you. To look just like the world, and even at some level, seems to be worse than the world. Okay? Then here's this last phrase that, that the people of Israel say. Here's the body, here's this concubine, and, and they come away and they say, all right, here's what we're going to do. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. The word consider in the Hebrew has this idea of recognize. Like just stop and recognize what has happened. Not, not from the Philistines, not from the Jebusites, not from the Amorites, not from somewhere else. Like, this is what has happened in Israel by the people of God. So stop and recognize. The, the phrase, take counsel, seems to have more of the idea, not necessarily counsel. Like, we think of, like, someone has good counsel and they advise. It's more of this idea, seemingly, to, like, let's make a plan. Like, so let's recognize what happened and let's plan, maybe so that it never happens again. Uh, how do we respond? Maybe we'd be a, a good way of saying that. Like, let's make a plan to know how we should properly respond to this. And then the last phrase, speak up, has the context of, of to warn. We need to warn somebody. We, need, we, we can't just let this be silent. Okay. I don't feel like I have enough time. I, okay. Do we take Judges 19 and now just catapult to, to America 2024? Because we look at what's happened in... Judges 17 with Micah, false worship. Judges 18, oppression, taking people that you shouldn't. Uh, Judges 19, there's homosexuality, there's sin, like there's gross, like there's just sin on sin on sin. There's, there's child sacrifice throughout the book of Judges that we've mentioned and looked at and seen hints of. Like at what point do we not say, Judges in America, wow, you're quite similar. Well, we live in a context that says, hey, however you feel today, that can be your gender. Like, like, God has no say over you or what you, like, he created you with a purpose and a reason and all these things the Bible would say. And you'd be like, yeah, I don't like what God made me. I don't like, like, and all of a sudden we can just do whatever we want. Right? Child sacrifice happens every day in our country. We just, we just do it before the baby's born instead of after. And so at what point is it, Israel says, hey, we're going we're gonna to recognize what's going on. We're going to make some sort of plan and we're going to speak up. Like, I feel like at what point does the church, not just our church, but like the church, like believers in America say, hey, enough is enough. Like, let's recognize what's going on. Let's, let's do something about it. Let's speak up and warn people. Because I feel like what we've seen is we've seen glimpses of hope throughout the book of Judges because here's Manoah and his wife and here's Deborah who seemed to be a pretty good judge. And, and here's even a father-in-law who shows hospitality and a man from Ephraim who also shows hospitality. Like, and he kind of epically failed at some point, but at least there was an attempt, right? And it's like, hey, we've seen it, we've seen it, we've seen it. The whole book of Ruth takes place in the middle of all of Judges. There's hope. So it's not like every single person is just blatantly wicked and evil. No, there's been people who have done something, but yet the people of Israel keep going lower and lower and lower. 
And every story has been worse and worse and worse. And so I don't know. I don't have an answer this morning, but I feel like this, these three things that they said here, consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Like I wonder how much of that would apply to us even today. Because I feel like the temptation is to be like, the world around us is so evil and wicked and horrible, but us, we're the holy people and we're fine. And it's like, yeah, but God's called us to be a, a, a kingdom of priests. Like to go out and win the world around us. And not just to be a holy huddle while the world burns. Anyway, let's keep going. Chapter 20. And again, I don't know how far we're getting into chapter 20, but whatever we don't get to this morning, we'll just get to next week. Uh, I probably won't read all of chapter 20 either. Uh, then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, uh, Dan to Beersheba, just think like from Maine to Florida, uh, including the land of Gilead, came out and the congregation assembled as one man to Lord of Mizpah. The, chief, the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot shoulders who drew the sword. Verse 4, so the Levite, uh, they asked the Levite what happened. The Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night in Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all your sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Okay, so there's going to be this council. Part of the council is going to be like, we're going to go invade them. We're going to raise up this many people out of each tribe, all those things. Verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness? That has taken place among you. Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that they may be put to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men. And here's all the number of all the people. Uh, but what's the point? Like Israel gets a wake-up call from this Levite uh, in the form of a, a body in some sort of package. And it's like, hey, something's going on. We need to take care of it. They call out the wickedness. They go to Benjamin. They call out the wickedness. And what does the tribe of Benjamin, again, not every single person, but generally speaking, the tribe of Benjamin says what? It says, no, we're not turning these men over to you. Like at some level, like, no, this isn't, this is what we're going to do. Like, like, we're fine. Like at some level, they're saying what we did is okay. Like, I don't, I don't know how you would ever be able to say that according to the word of God and his law, like all these things. But at some level, like, no, we're, gonna, we're, we're not just going to let you take these men. Maybe some sort of pride of their own tribe and you can't in interfere with our business. I don't know what they're thinking. The text doesn't really seem to tell us. But what we've seen is you do what's right in your own eyes. Micah, false worship. Dan, you look like the oppressor. Uh, Judges 19, now you look like Sodom. Like everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. This is where it's going to lead you. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And now we see chapter 20. What do we see? We see a civil war. Like Israel is, is actively, 11 tribes are actively gathering men to be soldiers to go invade their own people. One of the tribes of Israel. Okay? Um, we'll keep going. I'll come back. Maybe. I'll probably forget what I was going to say. But we'll come back to it if we ever remember. Verse 18. Now the sons of Israel rose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, and said, Who shall go up first for us? to battle against the sons of Benjamin. Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Okay. 
um, this is this is Judges one, right? Judges 1, think of Joshua. Here's the story of Joshua. We're going to go and take the land, the promised land that God has given us. We're going to drive out all the enemies. We're going to possess the land that God has given us. Judges 1, not everyone's been dispossessed of the land. Like, we need to go in. There's still people to conquer. Like, there's still work to be done. And so chapter 1 is what? Who's going to go up first to go drive out the rest of the enemies? And it was who? It was Judah. And God says, Judah, you go up first, and, and you fight, and you fight for the people, and, and you lead uh, towards the conquering of all the promised land that God has given to you. Now we get to the end of the book. At the end of the book, God says to Judah, you're the first who's going to rise up, and what are you going to do? You're not going to go fight against the enemy. I mean, you are, but you're not. You're going to go fight against your brothers. You're going to go fight against Benjamin. So I don't have the quote up here, but uh, I think it was Dale that I quoted a couple weeks ago that, that talked about these last couple chapters. It's not that, that Israel's struggling with the enemy on the outside. We're now seeing Israel struggle with the cancer from the inside. And everyone doing what's right in their own eyes is literally deteriorating and killing and, 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 and like, this is what it leads to. And I feel like there's this temptation of like, in my mind, old school, hardcore preacher who's like, hey, if you do what's right in your own eyes, this is, okay, this is years and years and years and generations. Where it's like, hey, this parent didn't teach their kid the law of God. They didn't teach them about Moses or Joshua or whatever it says there in Judges chapter 2. And the next generation didn't do it. The next generation didn't do it. Like, this is so far removed. And so it's not like, hey, if I can do what's right in my own eyes this afternoon and get away with it, like, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is here's a people, as general, that are doing what's right in their own eyes, generation after generation after generation. This is the result of that. Like, you look like Sodom. You look like the Philistines. You look like Egypt. You look nothing like Yahweh and the covenant that he gave you. You look like a, a divided country, civil war. Like, this is where it leads. And so what... What do we do with this? Like, we're going we're gonna to walk through, I'm going to stop here. We're going to walk through 19 and the rest of 20 next week. But it lays out, here's the plan, and here's the war, and here's the battle, and here's what it's going to look like, and a lot of people die. Seemingly, because we all go back to doing what's right in our own eyes. There's a, a rabbit trail I went down this past week. And there's a theology that's been around for a long, long time, but there's a theology that's wrong. It's becoming popular in megachurches all over again. Uh, it's called little God theology. And, and the idea is this, is that somewhere inside of you was something good, and so when God saved you, uh, it, it let the good thing out. So deep down, like, you, you have God-likeness in you, which, I mean, we're all made in the image of God, so... But anyway, like, th- when you get saved, it removes all the bad and leaves only the good. Okay, when we read the book of Judges, can I just say, that is not the picture I see here. Like, the book of Judges is a stern warning. Like, we have to follow the Word of God. You go to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. It's like, we're going to talk about the Word of God when we lay down and when we rise up, when we walk along the road, when we go to bed. We're going to talk to our children. We're going to imprint it on our hearts and our minds. Why? Because there's always a tendency to do what we want. Because there's always a tendency to leave God, to leave His Word, to leave, like, I need to be reminded daily of the Word of God. Right? Deuteronomy 6 seems so simple. I mean, in our vernacular, when you're riding in the car with your kids, you talk about the Word of God. And yet, how many times, me personally, have I ridden in the car with my kids and the Word of God hasn't come up? How many times do I lay down and put my kids to sleep? And it's like, here's another chance for a rhythm of the Word of God, and we haven't done that. And so, again, like uh, Judges chapter 2, we didn't teach the next generation, and the next generation did teach something. 
Right? We ended the story last week with uh, Dan taking over. They set up a temple to the false gods and all of Micah's idols and all that. Like, and what does it say? It said like that took place for years after years after years. They did teach something. So here's the text. Uh, here's, here's Israel who looks a whole lot like Sodom. And why do they look like Sodom? Apparently because they didn't teach their kids. They didn't train up the next generation. Apparently because they did what was right in their own eyes and they didn't follow what the word of God said. So what do we find ourselves in? We find ourselves in the middle of this last story of Judges, of, of a story of Sodom, a story of civil war, a story of, of what's going to turn into a bunch of bloodshed of God's people killing God's people. So next week, uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, chapter 20, chapter 21. Uh, let's pray. We'll pray for wisdom and discuss you this morning as we dive into the text we just looked at. Father, we thank you. As hard as this passage is, we know that it's in your word, so we thank you for it. We thank you for the warning to not just do what's right in our own eyes. I pray that we would be people who would know your word and who would obey your word, who would do your word. I feel like judges too. God, I pray you'd help us to be a people who would raise up the next generation to also know your word. May we, may we read it. May we memorize it. May we meditate on it. May we talk about it. May, may your word be our lives. And may it be what we want more and more of, not less and less of. God, I do pray for wisdom as we dive back into this text in discussion group. I pray that you would lead us in a good discussion of, of what to do with this text, of how to handle this text, of how this might shape uh, how we think, how we think about you, how we think about ourselves. But God, may you lead us and guide us in discussion group to come. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.